0: the start of a new year is a time when many of us make efforts to reorganize and reprioritize the way we approach the routines of our daily life. Isn't that true? Maybe we've taken some time to look back and evaluate the last 12 months or so, and we've determined that some changes are needed in the way that we do things. Maybe it's because our current approach isn't yielding the results that we had hoped for. Or maybe our current approach is no longer addressing the most important priorities, and that needs to change. Or maybe we see an imbalance somewhere where our highest priorities are ordered correctly, but they're not receiving the best of our time and energy and resources. Whatever the issue, changes are needed, and the start of a new year gives us the incentive to make them. As we take our first steps into the new year, we have no idea what the new year will bring, which Jonah just alluded to in his prayer. No idea what's in front of us. When January 1st came last year, we didn't see a global pandemic just around the corner that would change life as we know it. Last year became a year of transitions for us as we were asked and sometimes required to make adjustments and accommodations a number of different times throughout the year. And we don't know what's coming in the next 12 months. We don't know if we'll be asked or required to embrace new expectations, new routines, or new responsibilities. But I am confident of this. I am confident of this. Whatever might be coming in 2021, there are at least three priorities that are essential for us to face as a church. Three essentials for the church to focus on. Three priorities vital to our individual spiritual lives and to the collective life of the church. And those priorities are prayer, unity, and the pursuit of spiritual growth. Prayer, unity, and the pursuit of spiritual growth. And so today and the next two Sundays, we're going to be in a series called Focus, and each week, we're going to be looking into the scriptures to see what the scriptures teach us about each of these three essentials. This week, we're going uh, to consider the priority of prayer. And to do so, I want us to look at the Lord's Prayer as Matthew recorded it in chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Matthew 6, verses 5 through 15. And the perspective I want to focus on this morning is balanced prayer specifically, how the Lord's Prayer can help us develop a more balanced prayer life. How can the Lord's Prayer help us develop a more balanced prayer life? Now, balance has become kind of a buzzword over the last decade or so. People want balance. They want balanced news coverage, balanced diets, and balanced budgets. But truth be told... Balance often feels like a carrot that dangles out in front of us. Isn't that true? It's like it's close enough we can almost get it, but elusive enough to remain just out of our grasp. Imbalance, on the other hand, can lead us into some unhealthy excesses or unwanted shortages. A balanced workout routine would be a good example of this. If a person works out regularly, which you could see that I do (laughs) or not, but if a person were to work out regularly, but ignore the imbalance between weightlifting and cardiovascular exercises, that imbalance might result in a guy who could bench press a small car, but he's gonna huff and puff his way around the indoor track. An imbalance in the other direction could be a guy who might be able to run five miles without breaking a sweat, but his kid has to open the pickle jar at dinner time, right? And so personal trainers, personal trainers know that if they don't push for balanced workouts, people, here's what you'll recognize this as soon as I say it, people will tend to do the exercises they enjoy and ignore the ones that are hard, right? And the same thing can happen in our prayer time. Many years ago, a Christian musician named Larry Bryant wrote a song about this called My Never-Ending Shopping List. And the lyrics depict a person whose prayers have become imbalanced, focused almost entirely on the material blessings they want from God. And the chorus of the song goes like this. Give me this, I want that, bless me, Lord, I pray. Grant me what I think I need to make it through the day. Make me wealthy, keep me healthy, and fill in what I miss on my never-ending shopping list. When we become focused like this person in the song, when we become focused almost entirely on what we want and what we think God needs to do for us, our prayer has become imbalanced. And we end up treating God as if he's a genie in a bottle, summoned only when we need him. And we also know that we're slipping towards imbalance when most of our prayers begin to start with phrases like, God, help me. God, get me out of this. God, I need you to bless me. God, rescue me. God, give to me. Now, hear me say this. Please hear me say this. We should pray those prayers. We should. God invites us to do so. But imbalance arises when those are the only prayers that we pray. You see? Prayer is meant to be an ongoing dialogue between us and God throughout the day. Because we're in a relationship with him after all. So we talk to him, openly sharing with him what is on our mind, what's in our hearts. Prayer is a tender Honest, heartfelt, and continuous conversation between me and the lover of my soul. It is the extraordinary privilege of having intimate conversation with the sovereign God of the universe where we can say, Here is what is happening in my day. Here is my worship. Here is what I love about you. Here is my joy and my thanksgiving. Here is my hope and my fear. And my needs and my concern. And here's my confusion. Balanced praying means we share our whole life with God. And we seek to listen to him and understand what he has for us. Imbalanced prayer occurs when our prayer time begins to feel like we're placing an order, a lunch order at a drive through Does that analogy make sense? And the question I want to ask and answer this morning is How do we learn to pray in a more balanced way? How can we learn to pray in a more balanced way? And this morning, what I'd like to do is look at the passage in Matthew where Jesus taught the disciples to pray. Because if we're serious about learning to pray, there's no better person to learn from than Jesus. No one better. And no better place to begin that learning than at the beginning, where Jesus first addressed the subject with his disciples. So, Jesus' teaching on prayer in Matthew chapter 6 occurs in the middle of what is called the Sermon on the Mount, which is located in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount was a time where Jesus had gathered his disciples around him and wanted to spend some time teaching them. And as he taught, the crowds began to gather to to hear what Jesus had to say. And it's in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, where Jesus turns his attention to prayer, giving his followers two things. First, an attitude about prayer. And second, an approach to prayer, both of which would serve his disciples well. And so we're going to look briefly at each of them. In verses 5 through 8, Jesus describes the attitude he wants his followers to bring to prayer. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. And then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So Jesus begins with the phrase, and when you pray. And if you notice, he uses this phrase, Three different times. We're going to see it in verse 5, again in verse 6, and again in verse 7. The phrase makes it clear that Jesus fully expected his followers to pray. Notice he said, when you pray, not if you pray. And the threefold repetition of that phrase is meant to add punch, it's highlighting Jesus' expectation. He expects us to pray. Now, continuing on, Jesus told his disciples that as they walked through the towns and around the villages, they would regularly come across people who outwardly appear to be communing with God deeply in prayer. And some of these folks will pretend to be so immersed in prayer that they have absentmindedly wandered out into the public square, finding themselves unexpectedly in the synagogue or on the st- uh, standing on the street corner. But the truth is, Jesus says, many of these people are hypocrites. They're hypocrites. Their outward appearance isn't genuine at all. It flows from a proud and arrogant heart that desires to be noticed. They purposely position themselves in the synagogue and on the street corners so that they might be seen and admired and thought more highly of. And Jesus quickly says, I don't want you to be like them. Don't position yourself to be seen. Don't position yourself to be seen. That attitude is fueled by pride. And those who position themselves to be seen may receive the applause of men. They might. But that will be the only applause they get. For they will not be rewarded by my Father. To his disciples then... And to you and me today, Jesus is saying, and I don't want you to miss my father's reward. I don't want you to miss that. So he says in verse 6, when you pray, I want you to do it differently than them. I want you to go into your room and close the door and pray to an unseen audience of one. When you come to prayer, bring an attitude of humble secrecy. Humble secrecy. Go into a room, away from other people, and pull the door closed. Don't position yourself to be seen by men. Position yourself to be seen by my Father. And your Heavenly Father, who sees what is humbly offered in secrecy, will reward you. He will reward you. He may grant you what you have requested in prayer. Or he may reward you by saying no because he knows that's truly better for you. He may reward you with a peace that passes understanding or with a joy that fills you and spills over onto others around you or maybe with a deep and closer sense of his presence or maybe with some combination of those or maybe with something else altogether. But my father will reward you. He will respond to what he sees in secret. Continuing on then in verses 7 and 8, Jesus says, And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. In these two verses, Jesus warns his disciples against praying as the pagans do, meaning as the Gentiles do, as the non-Jews do. In fact, some of your Bibles will actually use the word Gentiles instead of pagans. See, prayer in the non-Jewish Gentile world was often characterized by magical incantations and strict adherence to certain words or phrases, and they had to be said in the right way and in the right order and the right number of times. The pagans or Gentiles depended on their many words said in just the right way hoping to wrench a pint-sized blessing from the tight-fisted grip of their disinterested idols. And Jesus said in verse 8, don't be like them. Don't be like them. They have misplaced their trust. They are depending on the wrong thing hoping that if they say the right words in the right way, But when you pray, come before my Father with wholehearted dependence, wholehearted dependence. There's no need to worry if your prayer sounds eloquent or if you used the right words or phrases or if you asked the right number of times as if there's an undisclosed formula. And if you get it right, you can wrench a blessing from the white knuckled grip of a stingy deity. You don't need to worry about that, Jesus says. So don't ramble on just to be heard. Don't ramble on just to be heard. In a way, Jesus is saying, my father created you, and he loves you, he adores you, and he knows what you need before you ask him. See that in verse eight? He knows what you need before you ask him. So bring to him your wholehearted dependence, trusting completely, In his heart, that his heart toward you is good and kind and generous. And your heart doesn't require long, detailed explanations or carefully crafted persuasive arguments. Because our Heavenly Father is already fully aware of our need. He understands our situation better than we actually do. He's not asking us to pray so that God can be informed because he already knows. He invites us to pray so that our relationship with him can grow. So that our faith in God can be deepened. So that our trust in our Lord can be strengthened. Prayer is for our benefit, not God's. It's for our benefit. So in his opening words about prayer to his disciples, Jesus describes this attitude of the heart that is foundational to the discipline of prayer, an attitude of humble secrecy and of wholehearted dependence. And friends, Jesus is saying the same thing to you and me this morning. He's saying to us, when you pray, don't position yourself to be seen and don't ramble on to be heard. Our God is not disinterested, tight-fisted, or stingy. He is our Heavenly Father who created us and knit us together in our mother's womb. And He breathed life into us. And He loves us. And He knows our need before we ask Him. And He is good and kind and generous. And that is the attitude that we can bring when we come to the Lord in prayer. Now in verses 9 through 13, Jesus moves beyond the attitude of prayer and he offers to his disciples an approach to prayer. So let's take a look at these verses, starting with verse 9. Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This prayer has been known for generations as the Lord's Prayer. And these words have been repeated verbatim by millions of people around the world each day. Now... I don't think that's what Jesus' intention was when he gave it to his disciples. I think he was simply offering them an approach to prayer, a model, if you will, to expand his disciples' perception, to expand their understanding of prayer. And Jesus included five elements in his model to give the disciples a balanced Approach To help the disciples see that prayer is more than just asking God for something. It's more than that. Now, to help us understand Jesus' approach, I'm going to walk us through each of these five verses and consider each of the five elements that Jesus included. And so we'll begin again with verse 9, which says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And here, Jesus emphasizes the first element, which is praise. We begin our prayer with praise. God and the glory due his name are to be given first priority in our praying. We start here because we need to be reminded who this God is that we are praying to. He is both our Father lovingly concerned for the needs of each of his children he desires to have an intimate relationship with each of them and at the same time at the same time our father is in heaven meaning that he is transcendent all-powerful and ruling the universe and friends we can begin our prayer the same way we start with praise We start by worshiping God for who he is. And if you're not sure how to get started, the book of Psalms is a wonderfully rich resource to help you take your first steps. Psalm 117 is an example, and this is the psalm that I read for you during our welcome time this morning. It says, praise the Lord, all you nations. Worship him, all you people, for great is his love towards us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. If it would help you to get started, I would encourage you to simply write down the scripture reference that I read each week during our Sunday morning welcome time and use that Psalm or those scriptures each day during your prayer time during the week. Then, as you get more comfortable with this, you begin to find your own scripture references. Or maybe you can focus on the attributes of God maybe one attribute in particular each day, or maybe on several at a time. Beyond that, you could sing to him. You could write something to him, a poem or a song. Or maybe you want to read something out loud to him that stirs your heart towards worship. There are so many ways for you to give him praise. Beginning with praise reorients us to who he is and who we are let me let me say it this way to try and create the contrast for you imbalanced praying disorients us subtly insinuating that we are the master and he is our servant because we're just bringing god i need you to do this god do this do this but balanced prayers remind us that he is the creator and we are the creature does that make sense And as we worship God for who he is, something else is going to happen in our mind and in our hearts. As we worship God for who he is, it will create in us a reverence for his name, a yearning to see his name hallowed or honored. And out of reverence for his name, we will no longer refer to him with silly nomenclatures like the big guy in the sky or the man upstairs And we'll stop using his name flippantly and even profanely in phrases like, oh my God. Those phrases should disappear forever from our vocabulary as we walk with the Lord. They should disappear. Those phrases are so beneath our God and they don't honor his name. To give you an example, because I love my wife, I don't ever refer to her as the old lady or the ball and chain, right? I address her with names that honor her because I love her. And because we love the Lord, it should grow in our heart and in our mind that we would want to seek ways to honor his name in every way possible and never to dishonor him. Now, verse 10 continues. And Jesus says, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in this verse, Jesus establishes our priorities. It's the second element that he provides. It's our priorities. And he focuses our priorities squarely on his kingdom and his will. In teaching his disciples about prayer, he reminds them that they need to assess the priorities of their heart. When they come to pray, are they focused more on their agenda and on the advancement of their own kingdom? Or are they looking at God's kingdom and his will? To pray your kingdom come is to yearn for the advancement of God's kingdom here on earth, to see his work progress, helping more and more people repent and surrender their lives to the king of kings. And to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is to long for God's purposes to be accomplished in this world, even as they already are in the throne room of heaven. There's a longing for men's hearts to obey God's will as an expression of their joyful surrender to him. And interestingly, just a few verses later, in verse 33 of this same chapter, Jesus is going to repeat this idea again when he tells his followers to seek first the kingdom of God, to give it priority because the advancement and expansion of God's kingdom and the accomplishment of God's will are to be the priorities of our new life in Christ and those priorities should be reflected in our praying. Notice that these first couple of elements focus completely on the Lord. We are seeking to praise his name We're asking that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done. Prayer starts with our attention focused on the Lord. And it is right for us to begin there. For he is our father and our master and our sovereign creator. But Jesus doesn't ask us to stop there. In fact, he invites us to continue to freely ask his father for the things that we need. Look at verse 11. In this verse, Jesus invites us to pray for provision, for provision, for God to meet our needs. Verse 11 uh, concisely says, give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. And I think Jesus chose these words very intentionally. Daily bread would have immediately reminded the disciples of God's provision daily of manna to the Israelites in the Old Testament. As they wandered through the wilderness. For 40 years, every morning, Sunday through Friday, God faithfully and miraculously provided food for every man, woman, and child in the Israelite nation. And they numbered in the couple of millions. It was their daily bread. And they needed to trust God for it each day. If they got greedy and gathered more than they needed, it would rot overnight. And on Fridays, they needed to gather a double amount because no manna would be provided on Saturday because that was their Sabbath. And those who didn't trust God in this way went hungry for a day. The manna each day as daily bread was an opportunity to trust God and see his faithful provision. And as the Lord taught his disciples to pray, he invited them to bring their needs to God. And to do so full of faith, for God has shown himself to be faithful, and he's trustworthy, and he will meet our needs. The Apostle Paul urged us to have a similar approach when he said, or to trust God in a similar way, when he said in Philippians 4.19, And my God will meet all your needs according to his riches and glory. So we can ask God to provide, to bring To him, our needs. In verse 12, Jesus introduced the disciples to the fourth element, which is personal confession. Personal confession. Verse 12 reads, Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Because our obedience to God in this life is never perfect. We find ourselves in a position of continual dependence upon God's forgiveness. Daily, we need to confess and ask for forgiveness. And so Jesus urges us to make personal confession part of our daily prayer. Confession is probably one of the most neglected elements of the Christian life. Confession means that we come humbly before God and we admit to him our sin. That's what confession is and confession is meant to be specific, not generic. Some people, when they lay their head on their pillow at night, they make kind of a general confession, something like this, God, forgive me for whatever sins I committed today, right? But friends, that's really not confession. One author said it this way, that kind of confession is more of a cop-out because if I lump all my sins together and confess them in mass, without being specific, it's really not all that painful or embarrassing. And I really don't have to take a close look at what I've done. But if I take those sins out of the pile one by one and call them by name, now it's a whole new ball game. Confession needs to be specific. So maybe a confession would go something like this. Heavenly Father, when I told my spouse I was late for dinner because of traffic, that was a lie. In that conversation, I was a liar. So please forgive me for being a liar. Well, that changes things, doesn't it? You know, or maybe instead of confessing that I wasn't a very good husband this evening, I might confess instead that tonight I willfully determined to be self-centered, uncaring, and insensitive to my family. And it was a conscious decision. I walked through the door thinking, I don't want to serve my family tonight. I've had a hard day, and I need things just to go my way. Heavenly Father, I need you to forgive me for my selfishness. See, to sin means that we have missed the mark. In one way or another, we fail to meet the standard that God has set for us. And this is a daily experience for each of us, if we're honest. But Jesus encourages us to bring these before the Father. Bring your sin before the Father and confess them as soon as we become aware of them. And 1 John 1.9 says, if we will confess our sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Psalm 103.12, which we looked at back in November, says that God removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. And once forgiven, he will never hold it against us at a future time. It's over and it's done. God is so good. We can bring our sin and we can confess it, and he will remove it forever. The final element Jesus teaches his disciples to include in their prayer is a request for protection. A request for protection. Look at verse 13. It says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, the New Testament book of James makes it very clear that when it comes to temptation, God is never tempted, nor does he ever tempt someone else to sin. But the scriptures are also clear to say that God allows his children to go through periods of trial and temptation as a way to test their faith. Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 is an example of this. It says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So God does allow us to go through periods where some uh, temptation comes from a different place, but we face it as a way of testing. And the Greek word that Jesus uses for temptation can also be translated testing. And that is actually the right sense of the word or the best sense of the word in this particular verse. Lead us not into testing. But here's what we must remember. The testing of a person, the testing of a person is not to help God discover something that he doesn't yet know about a person's faith. For God is omniscient. He knows everything. The period of testing that God will sometimes lead us into is intended to help us discover the quality of our faith so that we might learn where there is a weakness or a vulnerability of some kind, and then we seek to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to get it fixed. So this is a prayer for protection. Not only that God would protect us from walking foolishly or naively into a trap laid by the devil but also but also that if god should lead us into a period of testing to help us discover a weakness we are asking him first to limit that exposure so that we might stand up under the trial and endure the testing and second we are asking that he would deliver us from the evil one so that the devil might not gain a foothold in our life it's a prayer for protection Now, as Jesus closes his teaching about prayer, he adds one final comment. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is a reference back to his words about forgiving our debtors in verse 12. But these verses are often misunderstood and taken to mean something they aren't meant to mean. So let me take just a moment and explain this a little bit further. Whenever we're in relationship with people, there's always the potential for sin because as our lives rub together, there's friction and friction always brings heat. And when sin occurs, God always asks the people involved to acknowledge the specific sin quickly, repent of it, and go to one another and seek forgiveness. Do it quick. If we sinned against them, we need to go to them. If someone comes to us seeking forgiveness, we should grant it. The Father's forgiveness that Jesus is speaking here is not a person's salvation. That's where the misunderstanding often occurs. Our salvation is never dependent upon our forgiving our debtors or any other good work that we could accomplish. Salvation is always offered to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The forgiveness that Jesus is talking about in this verse, he's referring to the day-to-day fellowship that we enjoy with God. See, once we're saved, we're adopted into God's family. And God relates to us as a father who delights in his children. But when you and I choose to sin, that choice breaks the fellowship between our father and us, his child. We break that fellowship. It doesn't break our relationship, it breaks our fellowship. And so it is through prayer that we seek his forgiveness so that the rich, deep, sweet fellowship that we enjoy with him can be restored. What Jesus is suggesting here is that our heavenly father's willingness to restore the sweetness of our fellowship with him when we have sinned against him is directly connected to our willingness to forgive and restore fellowship with a person who has sinned against us. We can't expect to be forgiven and restored by God if we remain unwilling to forgive others. Now, of course, I need to say this just to be clear, of course, when there is an offense between two people, part of the forgiveness process is determining what level of fellowship is even appropriate to restore depending upon the offense, But that's a longer discussion for another day. But Jesus is encouraging us to have a willingness of spirit, a willingness in our heart to offer forgiveness to others. And in doing so, God our Father is quick then to respond to our uh, prayers for forgiveness and restored fellowship with him. Now, before I close the message this morning, I'd like to give you three ideas about how you might apply this teaching to your life. And I'll go through these very quickly. The first is simple. Try using the five-part structure that Jesus provided. Try using the five-part structure Jesus provided. The only way to know if a new approach is better than what you're currently doing is to try it, right? You just have to try it. So I would encourage you to, the next time you sit down to read your Bible and pray, maybe that's this afternoon or later tonight or tomorrow morning, use Jesus' approach. Use the five elements as part of your prayer. And you might find, you might find that your prayer time becomes even more meaningful and significant and balanced. Second, use Jesus' five-part approach to evaluate and modify your own approach to prayer. Use Jesus' five-part approach to evaluate and modify your own approach to prayer. Because some of you may already have an approach to praying that you have used for years and you find it really helpful. And maybe it even includes a number of the elements that Jesus already suggested. My suggestion here is simply to compare your current approach with the model that Matthew recorded for us. And see if there are any gaps Maybe your approach already has the elements of praise and provision and protection, but maybe the elements of priorities or personal confession are missing. If so, that's okay. Maybe you could look for a creative way to weave those in, into your current model. Evaluate and modify. Evaluate and modify. Because one thing we always know is that we can always be looking for ways to improve, right? can always look to improve. Third and finally... One of the best ideas I've heard is to keep a prayer journal. Keep a prayer journal. Now for the last, I don't know, six or eight months, maybe even a little bit longer, I've been keeping a record on my phone. This is a new approach for me, not something I I had tried before. But because I have my phone nearby all the time, I found an app that makes it easy for me to record prayer requests, to update requests periodically and quickly, and then track the ones that God has answered. I would encourage you to keep a prayer journal, whether that's in a little notebook or on your phone or computer, whatever. Track the requests that that you bring to the Lord. And as prayers are answered, record those answers in the journal so that you have a running and constantly expanding list of answered prayers for which to give God thanks. A journal will help you to see in black and white God's faithfulness, his trustworthiness, his dependability, and his power. And your thankfulness to him will grow immeasurably as you watch him faithfully answer your prayers and meet your needs according to his riches in glory. Let's pray and then the worship team is going to come and lead us in a final song. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you today and we just want to start first by thanking you for Uh, for for the privilege of prayer that we can come before you and worship you and give you praise for who you are and all that you have done for us to be able to pause during our day to reflect on and to give thanks and worship for you because you are so good to us. And Lord, I pray that this coming year You would help all of us to take steps of growth in our prayer life. All of us can get better at this. All of us, uh, I think, would embrace the importance and value of prayer. But all of us, Lord, are looking for ways to do better day by day. And I pray that uh, what Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 6 would be used by your spirit to stir in us a desire for prayer, and then to experience deeper, more meaningful, significant, balanced uh, ways to pray. And I pray that, uh, that that would be our experience in 2021 and that you would receive all of the glory for it all. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.